Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. It was back in the studio again. It's cool to be able to record when you're out and about, travelling around the place. But it's nice to be back in New Zealand with friends and family on solid ground once Well, maybe not. Maybe not solid ground. And actually, that's what we're going to be talking about on the Blindside podcast this week. Firstly, I do want to send a very heartfelt and sincere thanks to so many people who have been in touch this week by email, by Twitter message or Twitter mention and Facebook and all those other mechanisms that we have at our disposal asking how we're doing. People know that Wellington was affected by the 7.8 magnitude quake that struck just after midnight on a Monday morning. And it was so kind when we received many expressions of concern, making sure that family and friends were okay, even though people knew in many cases that we were in the United States, there was concern about the kids. And we really do appreciate that very much. It's it's heartwarming. And it is difficult. You know, on, on the one hand, you feel good about being away and missing all of the horrific events that were taking place in New Zealand. But on the other hand, you really want to be there. You want to be there to comfort your family and just be there with your friends. And uh, it's not so much fun trying to give safety instructions and making sure that your kids are okay via text message because you're not supposed to call after big events like that because the networks are placed under strain and so they recommend that you text. We know the drill, having been through a few of these, although 7.8 is something that I think all of us have not experienced before absolutely huge earthquakes. So we're going to be talking about that on the Blindside podcast this week with a couple of people who did experience the quake, one in Wellington and one in Christchurch. And our interviewee from Christchurch has been through more than her fair share of earthquake trauma over the last six years because, as you may know, Christchurch has been hit by some terrible shakes over the last six years, one of which caused significant loss of life. And so it's timely that we take a look at this. I thought there might be a bit of interest in what people have been experiencing here in New Zealand. It was odd being in Tennessee with Bonnie's mum and and the family and sitting down and watching the network news and seeing New Zealand on the network news. It's not often that this little country of four plus million people makes it onto the news internationally and certainly not in the headlines like that. And so it felt really surreal being away from it all. So we will cover that on The Blind Side this week. Sunday nights at 11 p.m. Eastern on Mushroom FM. It's a time to relax. The program is called Moon Dreams, and it's a relaxing two-hour journey into the world of music without words. Gentle music. Easy on the ears to help you soothe away the tensions of your week and get some sleep. Moon Dreams, Sunday nights at 11 on Mushroom FM. I have a fascination with the way that breaking news is reported, and having worked in commercial radio during high pressure situations, I know how much it takes for you to just keep your cool and keep going. When there is a big news story, uh, probably the biggest one for me when I was working in commercial radio full-time was the outbreak of the first Iraq war. And that actually happened while I was on the air. And uh, who was it? Marlon Fitzwater, I think, got out there and he said the liberation of Kuwait has begun. And then, of course, there were those amazing 
reports coming through from John Holloman and Bernard Shaw uh, in Baghdad when the bombardment began, that was quite something, having to make that announcement to people who you knew you were breaking a significant news story too. Of course, there's a whole different level, and that is when news is breaking around you and you have to exhibit calm. I want to play you this segment now as we begin our theme for this week, the aftermath of the earthquake in New Zealand. This is recorded just after midnight on Monday morning last And Vicky Mackay is in the chair. Now, RNZ is our national public broadcaster. They have two primary networks. One is a classical and sort of serious music and serious programming network. The other does a lot of news and current affairs and um, scientific programming, a bit of music in the mix as well. And I'm pleased to say that they are not automated. I know that there's been some discussion about maybe automating the all-night show. I suspect that that discussion may be on hold right now because the events of the last week has demonstrated how important it is to have a national network broadcasting with a real person 24-7. And also, the broadcaster concerned has been doing this all-night show for a very long time and she's become a much-loved figure. I think now she's been promoted from much-loved figure to international treasure. So this woman, Vicky Mackay, who's been doing it for years and years and years, She reads the news. She does everything. I believe she operates for herself. She's doing the whole thing in the middle of the night. And so she was settling down for the beginning of her six-hour shift. She does midnight till six. And she just started by reading the news. And then this happens. Reached 267 for two in the 43rd over of the match to win by eight wickets with 34 balls remaining for a 3-0 lead and a win in the five-match series. And yes, Wellington, we are undergoing a fairly dense um, earthquake at the moment. So please just get to somewhere where you are safely under some protection because this is long and rolling and it has been going and getting worse every five minutes. I can honestly say I doubt that I'll be able to stay in the chair for much longer. Hopefully it will calm and ease off. It's definitely the biggest um, earthquake we've had in Wellington for some time, but it's stopped rolling now, which is fortunate. I sincerely hope that you're all okay. And now, stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. Just after midnight, early Monday morning, in New Zealand, there was a major quake. It was 7.8 in the end. The adjustment, the assessment has gone up and down. It turns out it was a 7.8 quake. That is a very significant shock, over 50 times more than the earthquake that struck Christchurch. It did strike. Its epicenter was in a less populated area, but the landscape has been forever changed as a result of this quake. It was felt very widely throughout New Zealand, and to emphasise that, we've got one person at the bottom of the North Island on the call and another person from the South Island who both felt it very strongly. I thought that we'd have a chat about what it's like to be in such a significant earthquake and also look at some of the blindness ramifications of this, the safety aspects. What do you do if you're a blind person living on your own and you need to evacuate? And we'll take a look at some of these issues. Now, on the line on Skype from Christchurch, where she is a veteran, sadly, of many quakes, is Terry McElroy. So it's great to have you on the blind side, Terry. 
Thanks, Jonathan. And if you're listening to Mushroom FM, you will have uh, heard the voice of Anthony Horvath, who was quaking in his very big shed. Welcome to you, Anthony. Thank you, Jonathan. Hello, everybody. I think it would be good to start with you, Terry, because you've been in so many of these. It all started for you, I guess, in September 2010. I, I remember that. It was a That's Saturday right. morning, wasn't it? About 4 4 a.m. About 4.36, yeah. I think it was. And I was I was actually awake, but I was reading. All of a sudden, the, everything just started shaking. And I remember my family talking about quakes and my mother had always said, oh, we could have a big one here. And, you know, that that happened. That's what happened. Thankfully, because it was in the early hours or 4.36 in the morning, nobody lost their lives in that particular quake. We always heard about quakes at school and things like that. So it was not, um, it was just always in the back of my mind, but it wasn't something I ever dwelt on. And um, so my... Um, family wasn't too badly affected by that particular one. I mean, my guide dog had just retired not long ago, and so I was adjusting again to using a cane after a long time having a guide dog. And, um, you know, I would go out and I'd cross a road and the corner would be barricaded off, or I'd be walking along a footpath and um, I couldn't, the building would be barricaded off. And I'd think, oh, okay, you know, just get on with it. But after the February uh, 2011 quake, things changed quite significantly for me. Um, and that one, it, it's not actually the quakes themselves that affect me or affected me. It was the after effects that I found. I can I can only talk about what it was like for me, but mm. lots of people may have experienced it quite differently. Yeah. You would have been in quakes before September 2010, I guess, right? Because um, you know, before... little, little tiny ones. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because Christchurch is traditionally not quite as shaky as Wellington is where Anthony and I are talking from, New Zealand's capital. So, And I remember people saying that when they were in Christchurch and they felt a quake like that, they their, their first impressions were, well, gosh, if it's this bad here, I wonder what it's like in Wellington, because everybody expected that it would be Wellington that got the big shake first. That's uh, right. So, yeah, and the February 2011 one, of course, that resulted in significant loss of life. It occurred at 12.51 in the afternoon, so people were not only populating the central business district of Christchurch, but also they were uh, out and about because it was lunchtime. That's right. So it was an absolute disastrous situation there. I suppose that with all of these quakes that have gone on, because they're the main ones, but there have been thousands, literally thousands of aftershocks in the Christchurch area since September 2010. It must be kind of like waiting for something to go off because you never know when the next quake is occurring. There must be people in Christchurch who are really on edge Yes. At this point, just nerves a total wreck because you don't know when the next one's coming. You don't know when the next one's coming. And if you haven't had one for quite a while, um, you, you can just maybe be outside doing something and all of a sudden everything starts, you know, you just get this jolt and then you get this adrenaline rush. And um, for some people, it is really quite, there's been a higher, a lot of higher proportion of people having counselling and, you know, things like that because of the quakes. Yes, yeah. domestic violence, violence is on the up. Um, there are all sorts of issues relating to it taking forever to uh, process claims when your house is damaged. Yep. You know, you think you've just recovered from one bit of damage and then your house is damaged again. It's a very difficult situation. What I'm curious about also, and I know that there was somebody in Christchurch uh, who was chronicling the quakes in terms of their 
their quality because not all earthquakes are created equal or feel the same. I understand you can get different kind of, shall we say, textures of earthquakes. You can. Um, some of them are more of a swaying movement, a bit like being on a boat, so things go up and down. And some of them are really jolty, shuddery ones, and those are the ones that are the hardest to to cope with. I think the swaying ones, or for me, um, don't feel quite so bad. And Anthony, we grew up in Auckland where you very seldom feel a quake, and if you do, it's almost imperceptible, but you've been in Wellington for quite a long time now. I have, I have. Um, my first earthquake experience, uh, I was about five. I was in Fongamomna. <laughs> and um, there's a little I, farming I, settlement in the back of beyond where we have significant yes. ratifications there, yeah. Yeah, so that was the, uh, the my first earthquake experience. I, I happened to be I happened to be in the bathroom, believe it or not, and it, it felt like it was shaking and the house felt um, on, on a tilt. I remember feeling like I was on a slope. An interesting feeling, but uh, yeah, since I've moved to Wellington back in January of 2003, I've felt many, many earthquakes of fours and fives, and we had a good one, I think, in 2013. That was about uh, 6.5, I think it was, and one thing when you live in Wellington, they they, they always tell you, Wellington is due for a big earthquake. We know it's going to happen, but we just don't know when. So so be, be prepared. One of the most interesting earthquakes I've been in was when my daughter Heidi, who's been on this podcast, convinced me that she would benefit as an electrical engineering student to be at that stage from a Mac. So she headed me down to the store to buy a Mac and we were just about to cross a street. And I remember hearing a truck and thinking, okay, the earth is vibrating a bit because there's this massive big track going past. But then the track went past and the earth kept moving. I realized that we were out in a very exposed area uh, where there was lots of uh, tall facade to fall on us and we were in the middle of quite a significant quake. Uh, That was a certainly very scary experience for us because you're just way exposed when you're out in the open like that. So um, quakes are not new to any of us. And I was away during this most significant one. But tell us about how it was for you, Anthony. We'll start with you. Um, It was just gone midnight and you were still awake, I think. I was. I was. I'd planned on an early night, but then I started reading something. And as what happens, sometimes you get completely distracted. And it was just before midnight. And I thought, oh, goodness, I I better get some, some sleep. I've got work in the morning here. So I'm just lying there at two minutes past midnight. And I feel this little shake. I was like, oh, here we go. Just a little earthquake, as, as you do. Just something tiny. It'll, it'll go away. And then it just kept going. And as it kept going, it got stronger and stronger. And my first thought was, okay, is this the big earthquake that everybody's been telling us that Wellington's going to get? And it just kept going and going. And the house was shaking. It was, it was moving. And I just... Because where I am, my place is very small. I don't really have anywhere I can go. I don't have a, a table I can go under or or anything like that. And, of course, I'm certainly not going to stand in the doorway. So I basically just hunkered down in the bed with the pillows over my head and, and that kind of thing because that was actually the safest thing for me to do at that point. And it just kept the house was cracking and creaking. And it 
it's really hard to describe the feeling of the quake. It wasn't anything I felt before. Obviously, it was the biggest earthquake I've been in, 7.8. But it was swaying. It was jumping. It was, it was a mixture of things. And it honestly felt like it went on for... The, they talk about earthquakes going on for about 30 seconds. But this did not go for 30 seconds. I, I, it, it went on for minutes. And uh, afterwards, the adrenaline was just pumping through me. And um, that was me for the rest of the night. And just to give people some context here, the 7.8 earthquake occurred in Kaikoura. That's where the, the epicenter was. Uh, I'm just trying to think what the distance is between Wellington and Kaikoura, but it's across the Cook Strait. It's in the South Island and Anthony is in the North Island in Wellington. So he felt it very significantly. There's, there's quite a lot of damage. At least one building, I think, is coming down in Wellington. There have been some cracks in the road. Rail services were suspended. It was, it was huge. And yet it was a very significant distance away from both of you, really, right? How far are you from Kaikoura, Terry? If the road's... Well, before the earthquake, it would have taken someone about two and a half hours maybe to drive to Kaikoura from Christchurch. Right, and you felt it very significantly as well, right? Yes. Um, It woke me up and I sort of thought, oh, another earthquake, here we go. And it just kept going and going. Uh, I got up, um, everything in the house was rattling. For me, it was a swaying sort of quake. It wasn't a a jolty one. Um, And I walked into the lounge, checked because I have birds, I checked the birds, nothing had fallen over. I went back and checked on some other things and it was still going. It just kept going. Do you have a dog with you at the moment, living with you, Terry? No, right. no. Because I'm interested, you did at one point though, is it true what they say about animals being sensitive to quakes before they happen? Because I have seen guide dogs that we've had in the house become quite agitated ahead of a quake. I've heard that myself and I can't, I had um, two dogs with me at the time of the September quake and they were with me for quite a lot of, you know, the aftershocks that were happening and one of those dogs was also with me in the February quakes and he didn't used to give me any indication that the quakes were coming but because I stayed calm, he he didn't get anxious about the quakes. Some guide dogs you know, really got upset by the quakes. And when they went out, they didn't want to take their handler back inside the house because they thought it was the house that was doing it, you know, yeah. upsetting mm. them. Mm, um, my dog, uh, he was actually retired at that stage and I'd kept him as a pet. And I'm so pleased that I did because if I hadn't, uh, I used to take him for walks. This is after the February quake, uh, 2011. If I didn't take him for walks with, on the lead and just using my cane, I never would have got out of the house. He's, he stayed calm because I did. If you get all upset and anxious, which so you can't help, obviously, um, then you know your dog feeds on that as well. So um, I, I can't speak to them letting you know about the quake before they come. I know that that does happen. Yeah, dogs are very sensitive to emotion. They have some ability to pick up on it. It's it's quite uncanny. So mm. you've got the quake, and that's significant enough. And, of course, if you're living on your own, as both of you do, then you've got to go around, I guess, somewhat carefully because you can't do a visual check to see if there's any damage. You don't know what might have fallen from something or just slipped so that when you open a cupboard, something's going to come tumbling out of it. I guess you've taken precautions, Terry, right? Because you've had a hell of a time with this over the last few years. Uh, Yes. Um, If I could just 
talk about after the 2011 quake, I was away at the Blind Foundation doing a computer course at the time and my um, supervisor gave me a ride home. It took us several hours to get home. Luckily, um, he came into the house with me. Um, it was difficult to get up the driveway um, because there was liquefaction, um, which is this um, stuff that comes out of the ground. Um, so it's things. liquid essentially, right? Because there, there will be people who have never heard of liquef- liquefaction before. Li- uh, um, it's... I think it's actually the wrong term for it, but I can't remember what they like. Everybody just calls it liquefaction, so yeah. that's what I'll call it too. Yeah. It's it is wet and it's sandy, sort of. Um, but but it's it's quite. Um, it's not actual liquid like you would get water out of a tap, but it is it is sediment and it's very wet and and sticky and gluey and yeah, um, um, just Pretty like pleasant. Yeah, very. Yeah, it yeah. sticks to everything and it's heavy. It's difficult to move when you're spading it into a wheelbarrow, as we had to do. So I had that up my driveway and also on my property. And when we went into the house, there were things that had fallen over. A cupboard door had come open and glass had, you know, things had fallen onto the kitchen floor and broken. So there can be hazards. Um, fortunately, my house didn't receive a lot of um, structural damage and I could still stay in my house. But if someone's house had big cracks and, um, you know, the levels had changed in someone's house, it might have been difficult for them to get around in the house itself. Yeah. And then structural damage may be more subtle than that in such a way that it's still unsound for you to be there, but a blind person may find it hard to verify that. That's right. We had to wait until teams of people came round to check the houses um, after the quakes. I think some people did go to emergency shelters, but um, I couldn't have done that because I didn't have access to anyone with a car. And to try and, um, you know, trying to get around with my cane just would have been impossible. The footpaths were all a mess, you know, all cracked and um, you just didn't know what you were going to find. It would have been unsafe to just go out and try and get somewhere. There was no public transport. Power was off. You know, there could have been power lines, um, poles down or anything, liquefaction all over the place. So it just wouldn't have been safe to go and try and navigate by myself. And in the context of this most recent quake, Anthony, power was off fairly close to you, but you were able to retain electricity, I think, and I guess you had to do some pretty careful inspection to make sure that everything was okay at your place, especially, as you say, when you're in a smaller area and you just sort of never know what you're going to stumble into in a big quake like that. Exactly. Um, And that's pretty much what I did. I got out of bed and um, I have shoes and things there in, in case I need to get up quickly, so and just put them on and have a quick look around the house. Lucky uh, for me, our cupboards hadn't opened and things, so it was a very quick check. Um, but I also just went outside just to have a quick look with the cane just to see what the uh, texture and things were outside. And there were a few neighbours out there talking, and we were talking briefly about the shake. It seemed to wake everyone up. For me, being in a small place, I didn't have as much to check. But um, as Terry has mentioned, you, th- these are things that you can tell. Uh, glass has fallen on the floor, cupboards have, have opened, things have overturned. But in terms of seeing cracks or anything like that, then they're a, a little bit more difficult to, to notice. And that takes us very nicely into the next point I wanted to cover, you mentioning your neighbours. you get on well with your neighbours, Anthony? 
I do actually. Yeah. They're, um, they're, I'm, I'm, I'm in a bit of a student area, so they have quite a lot of uh, raucous parties, which is good because it's, it's, it, it, it's a good excuse for me to turn up my music. Um, so and, and we we talk quite a lot and, and things. So in that situation, I'm I'm very lucky. Of course, not everyone is in that kind of situation. Yes, and I think it's worth mentioning that New Zealand, at least traditionally, has been known for those listening to this from outside of New Zealand as kind of what they call a quarter-acre paradise. So although apartment living is more common now than it used to be, a lot of people still live on their own properties. There's land, there's room for a garden. People in New Zealand value their own space. We're only a population of four and a half million people. We're pretty widely spread out in this country and we value that lifestyle. So you do have to, it's not like you meet your neighbours in the foyer of the apartment building or something like that in general. You may not necessarily come across your neighbours at all. And the reason why I'm focusing on neighbours is because everybody in New Zealand is fairly close to the sea. We're an island nation. And inevitably, with a quake that big, a 7.8, there was a tsunami warning issued. And indeed, there was a tsunami that hit a small one. And uh, then there's the question of evacuation. Were you considering evacuating, Anthony? I guess you're in a, you're in a, a low-lying area, but you're far away from the sea, far enough away from the sea not to be worried about that. And I'm also I'm also actually up on a hill as well. Oh, are you? So, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're fortunate. I mean, we we are quite a bit away from the sea where we are, but we're also very high up up here. Um, yeah. So we're we're quite fortunate. But then there is the question: if you need to evacuate for some reason, uh, what do you do? Because uh, I don't believe that civil defence in New Zealand has any kind of. Do they maintain a list? Do you know, Terry? Of people who may be vulnerable in a situation like that, because I think I don't think people can truly appreciate this uh, until they've been through a natural disaster. Maybe there'll be people listening from places like Florida uh, where they have hurricanes and things like that, where you know how even if you're the most independent, self-supporting blind person, Mother Nature has a habit of kind of humbling you. And uh, when it comes to things like evacuations, you really are dependent on other people to get you out of a situation like that. I'm not aware of any such list. There may be, but I'm not aware of it. And in a case like that, when one of the teams coming or the men coming round to check, he did ask the question whether I should be evacuated. And I said, well, no, because my family lives reasonably close. And by that time, we'd worked out that it was safe enough to I could get round to my mother's if I had to, and she was coming. She, she was coming round to me because we had to go out and get water. But um, in in a case like that, you just have to wait until someone can come because my neighbours, we have a neighbourhood watch or neighbourhood support group in the street, so we do all know each other. But they're all elderly; um, they wouldn't be able to drive in a situation like that, and so you just have to wait until someone can come and come round and get you, unless you're able to contact someone by phone, which may or may not be possible. You just have to wait. Yes, I guess we should give a shout out to all the hams. You know, I know that uh, radio ham operating is kind of on the decline now with all of the other technologies that are out there. there. But 
especially in the 2011 quake when a lot of things were down. Phone lines were not working. Cellular service, even if it is working, and of course it depends on power, it will run on battery backup for a while, but even then it's very easily congested when everybody's trying to use it. So you you have a situation where a lot of traditional support services are not going to work, but the radio signals continue to travel. And so even if you have to resort to a battery-operated ham radio rig, you can do a lot to communicate and assist with the search and rescue effort. And they played a big part, particularly in the 2011 quake. One of the things that also interests me about the New Zealand situation, New Zealand is fairly vulnerable. We've got a, a lot of dormant volcanoes. That doesn't mean that they're never going to erupt again. They're just sort of dormant at the moment. And every so often we have a couple of volcanoes that show a little bit of a a sign of life. We're obviously on a number of fault lines here. And yet we don't have any kind of weather alert system or natural disaster alert system as is in place in a number of other countries such as the United States. So in the Mm. US, I was actually recently watching the speech that President Obama gave after the election, on the day after the election, and I was quite interested in what he had to say. I was sitting there with Bonnie's mum and Bonnie in Tennessee, right in the middle of President Obama's address. It just stopped. There was a long pause, and then there was this incredible ear-splitting sound, and it turned out that they had chosen that moment to test the emergency broadcast system. And this has the ability to interrupt all radio and TV programming and give you an alert about what's going on. We have no such ability in New Zealand. No one has the power to override every radio and TV network in the country with a message about evacuation or anything like that. And I think particularly in a blindness context, that is quite a concern because getting information uh, to people in a timely manner is critical What steps have you taken, Terry? You must have some sort of emergency kit that you keep maintained, and I guess that it's a lesson for all of us that everybody should have some sort of emergency kit that they keep maintained. That's right. Um, We were always taught at school when we did um, civil, uh, no, natural disasters, we were um, sort of taught about that, and then I went to what was then called um, Homai College and we took part in St John First Aid as one of our activities in the evening. We went out and, and you know, took part in a local um, group for that and they covered civil defence. In the telephone book, there was a list of things that you should have in your kit and so it was always in the back of my mind. Um, there were more recently pre-quake. There were more. Um, ad- they used to broadcast ads on the radio, advising people to be prepared for a civil emergency. There are websites also that detail what you should have, and one list tells you what you should have if you are stuck in your home, and another list for if you have to evacuate. Um, I like to have. They advise if you, you know, having three days of water and food. And I think it's if you've got a disability, you should have more than that because you don't know how long it's going to take someone to get to you. And there's little things you can do, like if the power's off, obviously, then you use things in your fridge first because they're not going to stay refrigerated. Find some sort of method of um, heating water that uh, you feel comfortable using, whether it's a little gas stove or um, a solid fuel stove. And don't just wait until the emergency happens to learn how to use it. Have practice sessions before and possibly store things in different places in your house because you don't know, depending on what the 
disaster or emergency is that's, that happens, um, can you get to the whatever your wherever your kit is? You might not be able to get to a particular part of your house. So there's little things like that that you can do. Um, have uh, a bag ready that you can just pick up and go. And don't forget your guide dogs. Things like storing water, you know, have food for yourself and water for yourself and your guide dog. And obviously you can replace those things, um, put it in your diary or something to regularly replace those and refresh them if they need it. Yes, yeah, so if you have an iPhone or a smart device of some kind, you could put a recurring reminder in that pops up every three months or whenever it is that you need to do what you have to do. Right. What about you, Anthony? Are you taking any steps to make sure that you have some sort of kit in the event that uh, you really do lose a lot of power and other functionality? Yeah, um, I have things like water and spare batteries and um, there's tin food and can openers, that, that, that kind of thing. A quick change of clothes, that kind of stuff. If I, if I do have to leave uh, all of a sudden, Somebody mentioned one of those wind-up radios uh, on the Roger Group, and we'll come back to the Roger Group in a minute, but those wind-up radios are pretty cool because then they, they kind of work indefinitely as yeah. long as you're willing to crank the handle. They're great as long as the dynamo doesn't break right? Uh, like mine did. But they also have um, solar panel on them, and so there's if, you're, if you can't plug it into the power and you run out of batteries, then there are other ways to make it go because, I mean, assuming it's a sunny day, you can charge the the solar panel, the, the solar battery, and use it that way. Yeah, they have those kind of bags, I think, now that you can you can buy from – I know you, you can buy these bags from the uh, Wellington Regional Council that um, are waterproof bags, and they have, like, first aid kits and things in them, and they have the um, a, sol- a solar-powered radio sort of in, built into the bag as well. That's pretty nifty. Which One of the cool, cool things that's happened over the last few years in New Zealand – is that the government has decided that since New Zealand is quite geographically isolated, we can take advantage of many of the elements of the new economy by having really good internet infrastructure and having just come back from the United States, it's absolutely flipped. I mean, I remember going to the United States and being so happy about being on really cool internet. Uh, our, you know, In general, we're just, we're just so lucky here now. The internet is incredible here. But one of the downsides of that is that everybody who wants it is being given free access to fibre right up to their houses. And that means that the old copper telephone network, which used to be incredibly resilient, I mean, it would hold up in the most extraordinary of emergencies and it wouldn't use regular uh, electric power that you would plug into and it, it would often keep going. People are less and less having access to that now. And it means that if your fibre goes down, you're also losing phone service because so much phone service is now based on VOIP, on voice over internet protocol. Have you guys given some thoughts to that in the context of uh, summoning up help in an emergency? Um, I still have copper for my, um, well, my phone did work um, during when the power was off and I haven't got any plans to change that at the moment. Mm. Yeah. And, um, like you, Jonathan, I'm um, VOIP as well. So, so there, there, there goes the phone. <laughs> yes, um, because the cell, the cell phone networks, as you said, if they get really congested, it can be hard to contact people. So, I'm, I'm not quite sure what I would do in that situation. Yeah, in my emergency I, kit, we have a twenty thousand milliamp <laughs> um, battery, which will power 
cell phones and iPads for quite a long time. Um, it's one of the anchor ones, and that's really important to us to have that so that hopefully we can. It, it, it is also important to emphasize that in a case of congestion, a text message may get through where a phone call will not. And so that's authorities right. do yep. encourage you to text and not call. Also, there are now universal power supply devices specifically designed for New Zealand's fibre technology where you can buy it and your ONT, the, um, what does that stand for? An optical network terminal. Um, the optical network terminal plugs into this power supply and it will continue to power things for at least a little while. Um, that will hopefully give you enough time to summon some assistance. You might get a couple of hours out of it depending on what other devices that you turn off. And I'm sorry, Anthony, you were going to say something else. Oh, no, I was just going to say, in that instance, I made use of um, social media like Facebook, for example. Yes. So Facebook activated its safety feature where people can mark themselves as safe in the event of this quake. And there were, I think, a couple of deaths, sadly, as a result. One very tragic situation was that they managed to rescue a 100-year-old woman from a homestead, I think, in the Kaikoura area. And her son was not rescued. He sadly lost his life. So it's terribly sad and ironic that a a 100-year-old woman managed to escape the quake and and her son did not. I want to talk about social media because it plays a big part in this in a range of ways. The first thing I want to talk about is Twitter because there is a hashtag in New Zealand whenever there's a little shake uh, or or a big shake, everybody (laughs) knows to go and check that hashtag out. Number EQNZ. Yep. I think a number of these things that we'll talk about in the context of social media, apart from information, which is important, and you do have a number of um, organisations such as Civil Defence here in New Zealand in Wellington. We have a Wellington Emergency Management Office in Christchurch, of course. They've got a very fine-tuned earthquake response operation who also tweet. So you get information there. But also it's just sort of support, I think. It's real-world journalism. You know, everybody becomes a journalist and they can report on how things are for them. But it's also just not feeling like you're going through the scary experience on your own. And I think there's a lot to be said for that companionship and camaraderie. Even if you use another Twitter app on a regular basis, and at the moment I'm using Twitterific on my iPhone and I find that very good, I always keep the standard Twitter app on my iPhone for emergencies like this. And the reason why I do that is that, to the best of my knowledge, it is the only app, I I know that tweetings can't do it and Twitterific can't do it anyway, where on your smartphone you can elect to have all tweets from a specific account pushed to you. And we have the Civil Defence Operation in New Zealand, again, the, the Wellington Emergency Management Office. They're very selective about what they tweet from their main accounts. And so... When they tweet, I know that it's something I should read, and I have them enabled with push notifications from the standard default Twitter for iPhone app. So whenever someone tweets from those accounts, it just comes through as a push notification, and I get it instantly. And actually, that is how we found out that the quake had hit. It was just 5 a.m. Central, where we were in Tennessee, and we got the notification to say that a significant quake had hit, and we were able to you know, text our kids and make sure everything was okay back there and do those things. So uh, having the Twitter app is a really good thing. I don't know if you guys do that, but I find it incredibly useful. I do. I make use of that all the time. It's very, very handy. Just straight to the phone, you get the push notifications. 
In the United States, they have government alerts, which you can elect to have pushed on. It's it's uh, on by default. And again, that's another great feature that we don't have in New Zealand. And I'd like to see that where there was the ability to um, you know, take it out of Twitter because you've got to sign up. You've got to have a little bit of tech savviness to get on Twitter and know how to follow someone and turn the push notifications on. Really, it should be simpler. There should be a way, just as there is in the United States, of getting notifications pushed from credible government sources. I you also probably you, you probably have also both found that you've got to be a little bit careful because there's a lot of misinformation and confusion initially after a big quake like that. that. That's correct. There is. And yeah, um, listening to the radio is usually a good way as well of getting information if you've got that available. But um, depending, yes, on you have to make sure that if you're going to use social media that you subscribe to credible sources because people are panicking and they're... Um, you know, things might, that they're tweeting or, or uh, posting about might be quite specific to their situation, but not necessarily apply to you where you are. Let's talk about the Roger Group because Roger, for those who aren't aware of it, is a walkie-talkie app. It's uh, doing very well, it seems. They've got a big funding injection recently, so they seem to be on to a winner. And it's funny, I don't know whether it's just the user interface or, or the features that they offer because there are quite a few of these walkie-talkie apps but Roger seems to have done particularly well of late. And I set up a group called Kiwi Blind Chat where blind New Zealanders can get together. Initially, it was a short-term thing. It sort of metamorphosized into something else. And um, that Roger group was pretty special during that quake period when there was so much uncertainty and, frankly, a lot of fear from people who were involved in not knowing when the next one was going to happen. And still yeah. could. You exactly. were on there a lot chatting away, Anthony. <clears throat> I was, I was. Uh, shortly after the after the quake, actually, I there was a notification from someone else who was on the Roger Group who sort of live live Rogered. Can I say that? Yeah, li- <laughs> li- live Rogered. Yeah. <laughs> While the quake was happening, it was. Yeah, yeah. and uh, which was which was quite interesting because you sort of people if on social media you're talking about Twitter, people will share photos and share thoughts and all that kind of stuff after the. After the event itself, but this is while it was going on, and uh, you could hear in their voice that they were certainly shaken and uh, wondering what on earth was going on and whether it was going to stop. And I uh, chimed in with 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 my little uh, piece at at that point, and the adrenaline was just pumping through me. I I, I remember trying to trying to use a touchscreen. I was shaking. My hands were just shaking. And uh, trying to do gestures on a touchscreen when your hand is shaking, it took me a while to get the uh, to find the microphone icon. That is a real issue that we need to talk about because if somebody needs to summon emergency assistance and they're having difficulty with the touchscreen, even if they're normally a proficient touchscreen user, but because of the intensity of the situation, you know, their hands are shaking and they're having some difficulty. This is a real issue. Yes. One of the things that is available in some countries when iOS 10.2 comes out is the ability to press the power button five times and summon emergency services. Interestingly, that is yet another feature, and there's an increasing number of them on iOS, that is another feature that is not available here, which is extraordinary. Uh, if it's you, just if, frustrating. Yeah, it is, it is frustrating. There's an increasing number of services, uh, whether it's the Apple News app, the new Apple uh, app called TV, 
there's a whole bunch of things now that Apple choose not to roll out to all English-speaking countries, even though when you factor in the exchange rate, we're actually paying more paying for our more iPhones for these, than Americans are. It's, it's absolutely outrageous. But the Apple Watch also has a feature which allows you to hold down the power button and summon emergency services. I believe that does work here. I, I've not actually gone all the way through to make a call, but it certainly pops up and says, um, you know, calling emergency services in five seconds or whatever. And presumably if we hung on, it would make the call to emergency services. So, And Siri may not always be an option because if your internet has gone down, whether it be through your, uh, your, your local provider or through your cellular network, both could have gone down. You're not going no to be able to make a call. It. Yeah, you're not yeah. going to be able to make a call through Siri. So it's important to think about that and to possibly add some contacts that you might like to call in an emergency to your favorites. And there is even a way with certain third-party apps to add contacts to your home screen so that you can just double tap from your home screen and make a call. It really is important. People might think this is you know, just totally over the top, but you won't think that when you're in an emergency and you wish you'd done it. Exactly. It, it's, That's right. It, it's always about planning for the future. There's this, I mean, it, for example, at, at the moment that they're talking about a 30% chance of another earthquake in the next 30 days between 7 and 7.8. And some people say, well, that means that there's a 70% chance that we're not going to get one. So, Yeah, but that's that, much higher than uh, the chance they gave Donald Trump of becoming president. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I um, think it's easy to... Clinton. You, you, uh, you, can't, you, you can't just take these things for granted. You need to, you need to be prepared you need to have things in, in, in place. Um, they, they, they need to be taken seriously, whether it's 30%, uh, a 30% chance or a 99% chance. It doesn't matter. It's easy to be complacent and you think, oh, it'll never happen to us, and then one day it does. And, and I just would encourage people to be prepared. It's the old Girl Guide and Scout motto. Even if you think it'll never happen to you, don't take the chance because if, if, if it does, then, then you're ready. Exactly. You have been periodically, Terry, going through this hell for six years now. I mean, yes. it, it's six years. It's uh, it's incredible. Do you ever think of moving to safer quarters and leaving Christchurch? People have asked me that before, and I think if I had had to move out of my home, and my home had been you know, structurally damaged to the point where it was unlivable and I couldn't get it repaired. I may have thought about that and that may, you know, if we get another big one, which, you know, it's not beyond the realms of possibility, it's not something that I'm dwelling on, but, you know, it's always there in the back of your mind, then I may have to make that choice. It's not something that I want to go through again, dealing with some of the issues, the after issues to do with repairs and, and the red tape you had to go through and some of the attitudes of the, the people you had to deal with was not pleasant and very stressful. So, I mean, some people are still going through it. There's still some people whose repairs haven't been done and, you know, they're fighting the system because they're not getting paid what they are owed or what they should be paid and things like that. And so, thankfully, I didn't have to make that choice, but I may, you know, who knows what's coming in the future. In terms of attitudes, did you ever get people who said to you, look, you, you're a blind person, you really shouldn't be on your own in Christchurch and it's it's not a wise thing for you to do? Um, there was the, the one 
who person who was talking about me moving to a shelter. I didn't need to because my house was safe and livable and you know, I, I just stood up to them and, and they backed off because I think that would have been quite stressful for me having to um, move out and go into a shelter and, and that sort of thing, yeah. What about you, Anthony? You've been in Wellington a long time, but nothing has come close to the quake that you felt last Monday. Does it make you feel any differently about Wellington? No, I I love Wellington. Uh, the the people are getting around. I'm I'm certainly not planning on moving. I, I think it's uh, given me a slight wake up call in terms of just making sure that I've got things that I need, and just to sort of re recheck the water supply and all that. So, for example, I re rejigged the whole water supply thing yesterday. But I, I don't have any plans on on moving. You've, these we are where we are, and it's it's going to shake at some point. It's just a matter of how severe. So we just need to be prepared. My thanks to Anthony Horvath and Terry McElroy for sharing their stories and coming on the blind side for this discussion. If you're interested in further personal recollections of the earthquake. If you listen to the Mosin Explosion on Mushroom FM, my show that is on between 2 and 6 p.m. Eastern U.S. time on a Sunday afternoon, that's Monday mornings at the current time difference between 8 a.m. and midday in New Zealand, and on a Sunday night at 7 p.m. in the U.K., you will know that we have a feature on there called The Banana Report. This is where my kids sometimes make an appearance, sometimes all four of them, sometimes one or two or three of them, and people say, why are they called The Bananas? I called them that because there's a whole bunch of them, you see. And they all felt the earthquake. And we've got my two younger children, the 16-year-old and the 13-year-old, on the show this coming week for the Mosin Explosion. And they talk about their experience of the earthquake further up the North Island, where it was still felt very severely. And my 16-year-old son got a bit of notoriety because he managed to video the quake on Snapchat. And that one went to all his followers and was received with a lot of interest. Incidentally, at the very moment that I've been producing this podcast on a Saturday afternoon here in New Zealand, there's an article that's come out quoting the Prime Minister of New Zealand, John Key, saying that a national alert system that will be cell phone based will be introduced. And I think this further strengthens a campaign that has been running in New Zealand about how essential it is that any blind person who wants one can have access to a smartphone that is truly accessible. Because now if the smartphone is going to be the tool of choice for pushing emergency alerts in a timely manner to New Zealanders, blind people have to ensure that they are a part of that too. So a very interesting development this Saturday afternoon from Prime Minister John Key. So we'll leave it there for the blind side. If you have any thoughts yourself on disaster preparedness, if you've experienced something like this, it may not be an earthquake, it could be, but it could also be a hurricane or a tornado or some other natural disaster, and you want to share some suggestions and tips and experiences, remember that you can record an audio file. It could be an M4A file that you record on your smartphone, an email. It could be something you send on your computer. Or you can just write it down if you prefer. However you want to get in touch, please feel free to do that. The email address is theblindside, all joined together, at mosin.org. That's theblindside at mosin.org. For all of the troubles that we've had this week, New Zealand is a beautiful, beautiful country with great people. I love this country and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else.
Have a great week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.